We have been studying Genesis together. I invite you to open a Bible, your own or the Pew Bible, and find the first chapter of Genesis. It's a pretty easy text to find. We're nearing the end of this chapter, and I'm going to read today verses 27 through 31 uh, of Genesis, and then move on to a brief passage from Romans and read as an accessory Romans eight nineteen through 22 if you want to have your finger in that book as well. Listen to God's Word. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and birds of the air and creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. In the book of Romans, a note that perhaps sounds quite different, but I hope you'll see how they tie together. I read Romans 8, beginning at verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And this is God's holy word. I ask you to use your imagination this morning and imagine a scenario that you have a wealthy cousin, let's say, who plans to go and live in Europe because of business for several years. And this cousin of yours has a deluxe 20-acre estate, a beautiful place to live that he has lavished his attention upon developing it, building it up with a magnificent home, a swimming pool, manicured grounds, a horse stable. And your cousin says, look, I need someone who can be responsible. So, cousin, you come, and if you like, live here in my house, or at least will you be willing to come and visit it regularly? And you can use it as you like, the swimming pool, the tennis court, ride my horses, drive my antique cars. There are several of them in the barn. Enjoy it. I only ask that you be the overseer, And in fact, I will pay you a generous fee and give you access to an expense account, but it will be your responsibility 
to see that the grass is cut and the shrubs are trimmed and the horses are fed and exercised and everything taken care of that needs to be done for such a a property as this. And you agree. And you say thank you for the privilege. Well, extend your imagination to the day perhaps that your cousin returns three years later and approaches his property, his home, seeing it for the first time in three years' absence. As he drives in the driveway, he's quite amazed because he sees two-foot-high weeds and thistles where there once was a lush and beautiful lawn. And getting out of his car, he comes to the front door and finds a sign from the local municipality that says, property condemned. And in fact, beside that sign, there are others from the utility companies notifying of the shutoff of the utilities. Amazed, he enters the house and becomes even more distressed as he finds evidence that vagrants have been camping out in his home. There's graffiti scrawled on the walls. Windows have been left open and the rains have come in and ruined the carpets and fine possessions that he marked and looked for are either smashed or missing. Maybe it really sets in when he goes to his stable and sees the skeletons of his fine horses laying in their stalls and no antique cars anywhere to be found. Well, that sounds pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? However, I would like you to think about what questions your cousin might possibly have for you if that situation took place. And I'd like you to think about how you could possibly give him any satisfactory answers to his questions in light of the failure of your stewardship and the trust given to you. We return to our studies here in Genesis 1, and we're now looking beyond the fact of the creation of man, which we dwelt on a couple of weeks. We're looking to the responsibility of man, man and woman together, as God created us in his image. And in verses 28 to 30 of Genesis 1, we have what theologians call God's cultural mandate. The command of God of how mankind is to live responsibly in this world that he has made and to act as the resident stewards or caretakers or landlords, whatever word you wish to use, to have charge over this wonderful creation that God has made. We take it from the fact that we are unique and Genesis 1 has underscored our uniqueness as being the only creatures made in the image of God, bearing that rational intelligence and self-consciousness of God and all that many things that that involves that other creatures do not have, that we are the ones, we are the managers who can influence history and the planet. And God chooses us to be in that position and gives us that charge. (coughs) Even in our fallen and sinful state. We are responsible for the garden that God has made, which is called earth. And we can either heedlessly violate or neglect this garden of His, subjecting it to goals of greedy and thoughtless commercialism, regardless of 
consequences. Or we can even go to the opposite extreme, as some do, and almost bow down and worship the creation, forgetting the one who has created it. Both of those extremes are wrong. It's wrong to neglect and to harm the creation. It's wrong to worship the creation. God has called us to a middle way. Psalm 8 says he made us a little lower than the angels, but above every other creature. He put us in a mediating position to act as the landlords of the earth. And it's a task that requires wisdom and creativity and skill. But there is no doubt we have not done very well with the task, have we? There is no doubt that planet earth is literally groaning today because of us. And the imaginary scenario that I painted about your cousin's estate, sure, it was exaggerated for effect, and yet it is not entirely inaccurate as a picture of the shocking way that we have mismanaged the trust and the privilege that God has given us to live in this beautiful planet. This morning I want to look first at Genesis 1.28 and consider the first main point here that we could call God's mandate for human procreation. The Lord said to the first man and woman, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Now, you could take that as simply a statement of the obvious. If there is a man and a woman and they are together in a marriage as God has brought them together, they would normally have children. And so what is God doing? Just stating the obvious? Or is he actually giving them a charge that has a rather deep meaning to it? We believe the meaning inferred here reaches beyond more than just simple biological reproduction by the first man and woman. That was already going on with the animal kingdom. If you look back at verse 24, you see that God simply observed or recognized that the animals were increasing and the fish and the birds and everything else were multiplying tremendously. It's just observed that that happened. But in the case of man and woman, we find the Creator speaking to them. And by the way, the very first time in the Bible that that God is said to speak to man. We've had God saying, let it be, or, or saying it in effect in his own presence before, but speaking to us or to a created human, here's the first thing in Genesis 1.28. And what did the Lord speak to them about? He spoke about their progeny, their offspring. Now, there's going to be more to say, by the way, about the roots of marriage when we get into chapter 2. I intend to, to dwell on that closely as we come to chapter 2, Lord willing. But implied here in chapter 1 is that for mankind, anyway, the birth of sons and daughters means something much more profound than just the simple multiplication of the population that happens with any biological being. Now, you see, if you adopt the evolutionary line of thinking and say that man is simply the most advanced material creature originating from an animal base, but nothing but an advanced animal coming about by chance development, then we are just so much highly organized protoplasm and nothing else. And so you don't really have to look at our families or our sexual lives as being anything different than 
animal behavior. And of course, if you look at society today, that's exactly what the sexuality standards look like, animal behavior. We're not supposed to talk about fornication or adultery or why homosexual behavior is wrong or why pornography is tremendously damaging to every aspect of our society because if we're just advanced animals and we merely came from a materialistic base and and have nothing but an animal state about us, then why have any different standards than we expect of dogs or, or any other animal? But you see, here in Genesis, we believe we do have a different standard expected. Because the Lord God, in a sense, is pronouncing a mandate and a blessing on the offspring of humanity. And while the full-fledged doctrine of marriage gets fleshed out as we go along in Scripture, I don't even imply that it's fully present here in chapter 1. Nevertheless, it's alluded to that the offspring we produce are special in the eyes of God, and they carry His blessing. Why? Because that's what man and woman are, special beings. We have the image of God. We have the Spirit of God with us. We are knowledgeable of God and able to receive His revelation. And I believe it is not going too far, and many commentators and theologians would join with me in feeling we're not going too far, that when we say that God is putting His blessing on the human family here, there's a sense in which our families come out of the fact that God Himself is a family. Before creation, Father, Son, and Spirit existed and interrelated had understood one another in that grand mystery that we call the Trinity. A very early father of the Christian church in Asia Minor, his name was John Chrysostom. He was a great preacher. He wrote about this subject, and he said, when husband and wife are united in marriage, they no longer seem entirely to be something earthly, but rather they are like the image of God himself. That was early in Christian history that a theologian was saying there's a sacredness about the coming together of a husband and a wife and the beings produced from their union are also going to be mirrors and reproduced images of who God is and, and at least be able to glimpse what God is like in their complex humanity. And so we would say, and, and maybe you think it's stretching a point, but here's the beginning of the Bible's doctrine. There's, there's much more to build upon it. But here's the beginning. Here's the first marker, cornerstone, you might say, for how we build an idea of human sexuality and marriage in the Bible. It isn't just about mating. It's about the sacred intimacy of a husband and a wife. And God, in effect, tells Adam that from the loving embrace of your marriage your descendants are going to reflect me. And they too are going to have the opportunity to know me and worship me. And no lower beings will have that. And upon them, I will set my my special affection. Children are seen as the blessing and the gift of the Lord, even here this early in the Scripture. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's something that echoes all the way through Genesis as the greatest promise that the people of God will realize. Do you, do you understand how much these 
Godly people, if you would read the book of Genesis, you find them longing for offspring who would carry on their heritage, not just the family name, but the heritage of faith. What's the greatest blessing that God could speak on the man of faith, Abraham? He said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Trust me. I want to do this. I'm going to do it. And whole nations will look back to you and say, Abraham was our original prototype. In him, we see how the Lord works with a man of faith. I wonder if we consistently think about our children as the blessing of God. Every mom and dad knows there are days when you think about them as something else than a blessing, perhaps the end of a rough day. But if God has permitted your marriage to have children, and of course there are those who struggle and are childless and would love to have even one child and cannot. But if God has allowed you to have children, do you really think about them as your number one responsibility during all the formative years of of their youth? Here is the main job that God has given me. He's put a trust in my hands on loan from Him. You see, the tendency is to view children as almost just accessories to all the other goodies of modern life. You may be a couple that has education and ability to go out there, each of you, husband and wife, and have a fine career and earn money and rise and have success. And you think, well, I can have that and children too. And, and if you're not careful, you can adopt the thinking that our society tends towards, you know, to say, well, 1.6 average American children fit nicely into the career paths of two ambitious adults who might find spare time during a given day or week to actually pay attention to their children in between everything else that's going on in their lives. I don't think that's the biblical viewpoint. Now, I'm not suggesting there's an ideal number of children. If one child is, is what you can bear and what your health or your finances or whatever permit you to bear, then that's fine. But what a blessing that there are those that say, why p- propose artificial limits to God? What is wrong with seeking to have a large family? I was talking to former pastor of this church, former associate pastor Chuck Walton, who ministers out in Iowa among farm families. And somehow, he's, well, he always, he always likes to ask me what I'm preaching on. And I told him, so we came to this subject. And, and he said, you know, Michael, it's, it's remarkable. He said, the farm people that I minister to, nearly every one of the older adults would tell you that they're from a family of anywhere from six to ten children. And most of them have about two children. Well, that isn't on the face of it something to actually be condemned exactly, but we, it ought to cause us to ask the question, well, what is it that's guiding us in our family planning and our thoughts of how God might bless us with families that we could raise up with children who would know the Lord and have His character and His name imprinted on them and and that they would even reach to succeeding generations as the Bible often implies. And that would go on and go on. And God's people would regenerate faith upon the earth. 
I believe God's mandate for human procreation found here in Genesis 1 is a cornerstone doctrine. It's not everything the Bible's going to say on this, but it begins to hint at us, certainly, that God, because He loves our offspring and gives them to us as a blessing, must hate, as we should hate, the very idea of deliberate abortion. Folks, you know what governs this pulpit as far as politics is concerned, but I'll venture out on a narrow plank. If your vote for a new president next month had to be decided on a single issue, and it shouldn't be decided on a single issue, but if it was, I should think you would want to find out which candidate openly advocates partial birth abortion. The cutting apart of a child as it is near its term of delivery The U.S. Supreme Court has opposed it. One candidate is in favor of it. And he said it openly, but he's not saying it on his abundant TV ads. God believes in the sacredness of human life. And that sacredness compels Christians in other areas to think about, for example, what methods of birth control are best to think about because there is birth control, you see, that prevents a child from being conceived, but then there's that which actually, very, very early stage, aborts a fertilized embryo from the mother's body. Do you know the difference? You need to know the difference. You need to find out that difference. We need to think of God as being sovereign in the children that He brings to us rather than some kind of minimalist, secular planning strategy that says, well, you know, I, I just can't even imagine how those families of four or five or whatever do that. Well, let God show you how it can be done. All told, I think Genesis lays down a basic foundation here that says that the precious gift of human life via children should be prized and prized supremely as a gift and a trust put in our hands by God. Well, secondly, we move on here to a more broad issue, and that is God's mandate for creation stewardship in a general way. And verse 128 flows right on and says, not only fill the earth, but do more. Subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and birds of the air and every living creature. Now, God Giving us his image means we have a rare kind of intelligence. We are not the strongest animal on the earth to the extent that we are animals. We are not the most ferocious. We don't have the best eyesight or the best hearing, but we are the smartest. And we are God-endowed to be the leaders of creation. Every society requires some kind of leadership to organize and domesticate and make decisions. And God has entrusted that, Genesis says, to man and woman. By the way, if you'd look forward in chapter 2, you'd see that Adam was caused to study the living creatures. In 2.19 and 20, he was asked to survey them and, and look them over and understand them and even name them. By the way, one wag that I read said, you notice, that Adam was asked to name the creatures before the creation of Eve, so that he didn't have to have a second opinion on every name he chose. Well, 
That's not from me. Two words here have caused a great deal of misunderstanding. The words to subdue and to rule. Now, it is true, in the Hebrew language, these words do tend to have a bit of a militaristic aspect to them. To subdue means to put down. You know, you put down a riot by bringing in force or something like that. And rule can mean to rule in a harsh way or even a a dictator's way of, you know, allowing no opposition whatsoever and violently striking down anyone with a different idea than yours. And so you might think we're being told here to stride forth into this world and use brute force to trample upon nature. And in fact, we are accused of that today. If you don't know it, the more extreme wing of environmentalism today chooses Christianity and Genesis and says, look, the whole idea that man can do anything he wants with the world is the Bible's fault. And it's the fault of Christians who think they were given this dictatorship to just go and do anything they wanted. And and we are blamed for the vandalism of the planet. I would say to you, however, that God's mandate to Adam here does not have to and, and actually does not suggest that kind of violence or simply reckless use of the planet. Genesis, you have to think about the situation that existed here in creation before man sinned. We read in Genesis one time after time, and God saw it was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. This was a blessed creation. It was a harmonious creation. It was a place not only of beauty, but of relationships among the living creatures that work together. It was not a place of violence and of waste and destruction. And that is the kind of place Adam was put in charge of. And so I would agree with those who would say what Adam is being told here is is to act as a benevolent king would act. How do we think of a good king back in the days of when kings had great power in the hands of one individual? Well, You want to have the kind of a king who's very mindful of his subjects and knows them well and knows their weaknesses and their needs and how they interrelate, who makes just laws, who looks for how things are working out and and fine-tunes his kingdom to sustain order and promote life and peace with the greatest benefit to all. That kind of a king, a servant king, is going to be held in high esteem and people are going to thrive under his rule. He's not going to use domination and exploitation and forcefulness that's unnecessary. That's not the best way for a king to rule. And I believe that was God's ideal for the stewardship Adam and Eve were given over creation. He didn't have to go out with a sword, you know, and and a bulldozer and (laughs) say, hey, creation's a mess. I've got to straighten it out. It wasn't a mess. It was in a wonderful condition. And it simply had to be maintained that way in balance and order and harmony. Well, of course, we know that sin came in and ruined it all. Now, we haven't got to chapter 3, and we will, Lord willing, in weeks to come. But you notice, if you look ahead into chapter 3, verse 17, that as God is pronouncing the curse upon Adam and the result and the consequence of his sin, he says to him, and and this is directly related to the charge he'd been given in chapter 1, Because of your sin, cursed is the ground, 317. Cursed is the ground because of you. And through painful toil you will eat from it 
all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles, and you will eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. In other words, everything's going to change in relation to the creation. Now force is going to be needed. Now hard work is going to be needed, and it's going to be difficult to make a living. Where before the grain and the fruit and things were abundantly available, now you're almost going to become, Adam, the enemy of the earth. And we believe that out of that comes the hellishness of chemical pollution and strip mines and warfare that ruins the earth and farm erosion and smog and you name it, on and on and on. Because of our sin, the sin of Adam that became our sin, now it's almost as if the fox is left in charge of the hen house. And we ruin the earth instead of govern it benevolently. But there's something amazing to think about. If that sounds like a pretty depressing picture, it is. But you look at Romans chapter 8 and why I read it this morning, verses 19 to 22, where God reveals through Paul, as Paul is talking about the picture of salvation. Now, Romans 8 is about salvation. Christ came, interposed his death to pay the penalty for men and women to be saved. And in the midst of that chapter, we find that statement that the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God, those who are being saved by Christ, to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, and the creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth. And Romans 8 says that too is going to be addressed because of what Christ did. You see, the Bible correctly diagnoses our environmental crisis that we have today. It is 100% the fault of mankind. We can't dodge the responsibility. All of our ungodliness and deviousness and selfishness has led us collectively, not maybe you just as an end. You say, what did I do? Well, we're all part of the kinds of corporate attitudes and ways in which people address this planet and ruin it. And it behooves us as believers in Christ to understand this responsibility to do everything we can, to maybe just in our little corner, to clean up the planet, to act responsibly, to recycle, to do all these kinds of things, to oppose the exploitation and, and unnecessary cruelty to animals and the industrial rape of the earth and the skies. These are responsibilities of Christians. And they're something for the common good, of course, as well. But be careful in doing it, you see, that you don't lose sight of God as the one you worship. Because so often it ends up that those who care and those who advocate these things end up worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. Now, finally this morning, I believe that biblical believers should glimpse the environmental crisis that we live in in its largest possible context. The Scripture teaches that there will be a final solution to these dire problems. It's already planned by God. We can do our part. We can clean it up as as best we are able. We're never going to completely turn it around because sin has gone so far in damaging this planet that it's going to go on groaning. But there is a supernatural restoration of the earth itself planned by God. One that will be the only sufficient answer. And by the way, Colossians 1.20 declares that the death of Christ was God's supreme 
sacrifice and cost that was paid to, quote, reconcile all things to himself. You say, well, that means my salvation. Indeed it does, but it includes a broader thing than that. God's salvation is very comprehensive. It includes the reconciliation of everything that is out of whack because of sin. And environmental cancers that have spread across the earth from humanity's sin are going to be addressed in God's dramatic work at the last day. For the Scripture says when Christ returns as judge and Savior, 2 Peter 3.10 and following, if you want maybe the most dramatic text, tells how God will purge the earth itself and recreate it as a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Revelation 21 and 22 shows the wonder of God's Word. For those last two chapters of the Bible close out, you know, it's like a bookend. Here you've got Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 telling how man begins in a a relationship with the earth and, and goes wrong in it. And Revelation 21 and 22, the bookend at the opposite end, tells you of the new heaven and the new earth where men and women dwell and see the face of God. And all the stain and all the death and all the grief are gone. And that is not just a utopian myth. That's the consequence of the redemption of Christ, which is not only for the souls of men and women, it's for our planet. Founded on the cosmic victory of Christ, we rest assured of seeing this great sight. Seeing our earth in an array of perfection and harmony and order that only Adam in his original sight has seen before us. God will accomplish it. Praise be to him. Father, we see what a wide net your truth has cast. We thank you that Christ died that we might be saved from the consequence of spiritual death. But here today we realize that even this original charge that you gave to man, and we having gone wrong in it, you're going to turn it around. Father, you are very great. We thank you for your Son and for this solution that goes beyond what we could achieve ourselves. Cause us to give him constant praise. For Jesus' sake, amen.